From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Greens Senator Barbara Pocock has been one of the federal parliamentarians who has held the feet of the big consultancy firms to the fire during this year. PwC has especially felt the heat over its improper use of confidential government tax information for its commercial gain. But the behaviour of the other consultancies has also been under very strong scrutiny. Barbara Pocock and other MPs have shown how the parliamentary committee system can be used to great effect to hold accountable executives of big companies where other avenues fail. The Green Senator joins us today to talk about this and other issues. Barbara Pocock, can you firstly run us through what we learned this year about the big consultancy firms and how they operate? Well, Michelle, so much. Um, We've learned a great deal about what goes on inside the big four and some of the other big consultancies as well, especially the proportion of government money that has been going to them um, billions of dollars and a rapid increase in their share of government revenue over the last decade when we had caps on public servant numbers and, and a really massive expansion in consulting. So we've learned a lot about what PwC is like inside and the very serious misdemeanour of Mr Peter Collins, which many Australians I think have been really shocked to learn that someone would use confidential government information to assist some of the world's largest companies avoid tax. So the PwC events... Just to be clear for our listeners, he had access during a consultative period to what the government was going to do Mm. and then that information was used by... PwC. Yeah, exactly. And that that sparked a whole cascade of of information about what had been happening in PwC for for eight years, in fact. It's taken a long time for those events to surface and the penalties to begin to flow. But I think beyond PwC, that has drawn a spotlight to the nature of the big four and their role, both in government and beyond, and the very serious conflicts of interest uh, that have occurred in a range of different settings. In aged care, for example, on the one hand, advising government on the regulation of aged care while also advising clients on how to deal with those regulations. Straightforward conflicts of interest like that. But also the question of value for money. I think many Australians have been surprised to learn the daily rate for consultants, you know, up to $16,000 and beyond uh, to provide services which our public servants in many cases could be providing things like the design of big programs, uh, the the letting of contracts to for government services, Many, many things that people have been surprised about and are now resulting in a range of responses from the Albanese government. Now, let's go to those responses. What have these grillings actually achieved and how will things change? Well, I think we've immediately seen, um, given the population's response to the size of the spend through, through very expensive big consultancies, a reduction in uh, contracting and a sense that we need to rebuild a very hollowed out public service to make sure we've got the expertise, the leadership, the frank and fearless advice structures um, so that we never again see, for example, a robo-debt 
disaster, poor leadership, Australians paying a big price, loss of life, um, and things like, uh, you know, a PowerPoint presentation valued at a million dollars and simply, you know, just eight pages long, the kind of extraordinary um, profiteering. Uh, so I think we're going to see um, a, a shrinkage in the spend on those on those big consultants in the public sector. Uh, we are seeing a revival of the public sector uh, expertise and 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 an investment in the public service, which which is well overdue and really needs to make up for the loss of many thousands of jobs effectively that have been contracted out in recent times. And that will improve the quality of service, I'm confident. And we in the Greens really want to see a strong public sector doing all of those core functions. That's not to say there isn't a role for consulting in the public sector, there is. But what we've seen is um, a, a, a ridiculous overspend and at great cost to the public sector. So I think that's one of the main things we are seeing at present and we see also uh, a really a big contraction in PwC, uh, which has uh, carved off its government consulting into a new entity, SIGN, uh, to do that particular work no longer in conflict within PwC. A range of other measures coming down the pipe uh, to try and prevent uh, conflicts of interest, increase the fines for tax avoidance and assisting big companies to avoid tax. I think we've seen, I've certainly heard from hundreds of whistleblowers across Australia who want to call out bad things they've seen, whether they're in the public service or in the big consulting companies themselves, we need to have better protection for whistleblowers. And we also need to deal with the really significant problems where entities within the government in our tax architecture have failed to be able to share information and really respond to bad behaviour. So how bad is the state of the public service at the moment, do you think? Well, I've just been coming this this afternoon from an inquiry which heard from the, the CPSU, the union in the public sector, and uh, I've had many people contact me who've been long-term public servants. I, I spoke today about an, an economist, worked in the public sector, state and federal, for 40 years, lamenting the decline in expertise um, within, you know, simple cost-benefit analysis now is so frequently let immediately to a private consulting company. We need that capability in our public sector. And it is a great pity that we're having to, having to make such a deliberate turning of the ship to do that rebuild. But the hollowing out of the public sector really is a significant problem for us now. I mean, aged care is not a marginal public service. It is a core public service. And yet we have very significant firms in there. Stuart Brown, we have been hearing about today, um, you know, doing a lot of business in that sector when really it's public service and it should have the public interest at its core, good value for money, um, and, and not be a matter for the private sector to come in and make a great profit profit out of. Now, you did see say, though, that um, outside consultancies were appropriate in certain circumstances. What areas do you think in particular that would apply to and what sort of guardrails would you need around it? Well, we need much better guardrails than we have had. Um, for example, cybersecurity um, and the IT systems in the public sector. These are let out at enormous cost. They are now core business. They are core business for any public agency and any private agency in, in this country now. And we should no longer be thinking them of specialists you know, issues which we need to pay the big dollars for to draw in. We need to build that capability. So we've got a lot of challenges inside our public sector. We know there are very expensive challenges coming down the pipe as well, the cost of climate action in response to the climate crisis, further pandemics quite possibly, uh, bushfires and significant events that require a robust, highly skilled and well-led public sector. So plenty of work to do there, Michelle. One of the problems has been that uh, public servants 
firms very easily move into jobs in these large consultancy firms that everyone's scratching each other's back, as it were. Do you think there need to be tougher rules about public servants moving to the firms? Yes, the revolving door. Um, Very important that we manage that better. We need to manage it better for ministers uh, as well. At the moment, we have a requirement on a minister. uh, They're not allowed to move technically uh, required, you know, an 18-month sort of cooling off period before they can work in their area of ministerial responsibility. But there is no penalty for a minister who doesn't do that. They're an ex-minister, of course, when they take this work on. Where are the levers to impose a penalty, even at the minister level? In terms of public servants, I think it's very important we have a cooling off period. We've been hearing evidence today on that question of, you know, should it be one year, should it be two years? Um, There are a range of measures that we need um, and we need to also be very careful in the way we manage things like secondments. We have seen very aggressive harvesting of uh, commercial opportunities in our public sector by the strategic placement of people into leadership teams being lent or seconded and so on. And then we've heard evidence of 100 people in the last five years leaving defence to go and work for KPMG. Now, KPMG's a major player in the field of defence. A huge amount of this contracting work is in the defence field. It's a black box that many people don't understand. We really need to be looking much harder at what goes on in that sector and that rotating uh, door, which feeds the business of those who are trying to make money in the field of defence. Well, how do you actually control this without very draconian measures? Well, we need protocols with with consequences. Um, at present, it's it's unmanaged by and large, even as I said at the ministerial level. So there is serious work to be done there to protect the public interest and to protect the security. Of, of management in certain areas, certainly in defence and in other areas as well. So, yeah, I think there's quite an agenda of action there which we've uh, yet to see real steps. So would you want the criminal law to be involved in um, preventing people going into these areas for a certain time? I think we should have a graduated set of penalties in relation to the nature of the offence um, and the intentionality of the of the offence as well. So I think there is work to be done there to, to get it right. Um, I, I think we also need to... Im- manage much more effectively the ethical practice and and we are missing penalties for unethical practice, for example, in harvesting conflicts of interest and so on. So the regulatory regime across the use of consultants, including that matter of the revolving door, is all pretty well underdone at present. Um, and I think we've got real work to do to make sure people understand their obligations and will feel the sting when they don't meet them. Before we move on to some other issues, I get the impression that senators uh, in particular have, but MPs generally, have worked pretty collaboratively across party lines on these issues. Is that correct? Oh, it's been really an interesting experience, I have to say. I think we have shared the shock. Uh, in the Senate about what we have seen, the misuse of public money, the straightforward corruption in some cases, um, and um, the lax investment in our public sector. Um, I think all people who have across the Senate who have witnessed that, um, the crossbench and, and the big parties, 
have shared outrage about it. And that's very much reflected in that first report made by uh, our Senate committee into the PwC scandal, where very strong language is used about the betrayal of the public sector and of the Australian people by PwC. So yes, it is it is very collaborative. And um, often you'll see a senator asking questions, followed by a senator from another party pursuing the same issues, trying to get to the bottom of what's happened and really think hard about what remedies are needed to fix this. The parliament working well in this case? I think so. I mean, it's I'm a new senator, but I must say, I have found it a very constructive environment. Let's move to some other topics. The Greens were very critical last week of the legislation to impose tough restrictions on the immigration detainees that the High Court has ordered be released. The government appears indeed to be now examining even further legislative options. Do the Greens believe that any danger these people pose to the community has been overstated and how should they be transitioned into the community? Well, you're right. The Greens have been really um, taken aback by the rapid action which has in some cases set aside the rule of law in relation to these people. And for me, it feels very reminiscent of the Tampa moment where I happened to be working in the parliament in the year 2000-2001 uh, for Natasha Stott Despoia as an advisor. And it, it feels like the creation of, you know, another group of people who we are meant to despise and feel frightened of um, and to leap to a legislative response which is which, as we've heard from very experienced human rights lawyers, tramples the rights of people to be treated with equality under the law. And I think the opportunity to do a, a better job has really been lost. And we see Labor and Liberal in competition uh, to outdo each other in their ferocious response to this this challenge. And I've, I feel personally really horrified by what we are seeing. And yet, if you listen to talk back and, and look at the reaction from the community, a lot of people obviously want very tough action. What has been the response that you've been hearing from the community in these last few days? Well, I've been locked up in Parliament for too many days to really be talking. But of course, it is a very important issue out there. Fear is a very powerful political tonic and people respond to it. And I think we are seeing a very aggressive um, uh, marketing of fear by Mr Dutton and it is really shocking to me uh, how that response is provoked. Um, people need to be treated with fairness. They need to be treated by the rule of law and it's not up to politicians to lock people up for unlimited periods of time. Mandated sentences, um, I find it very alarming and, and the Greens have felt very strongly the need to push back at the promotion of fear against this small group of people. So do you feel any restrictions need to be put on the, any of these people? I think we should be relying on rule of law uh, and I don't think it's my job uh, or the job of, of an elected politician to determine people's sentences. I think that is a question, a separation of powers issue here and the rule of law and the equality of people before the law, especially people who have come to this country ex in extremely vulnerable circumstances and we, we don't know all of, their, all of their circumstances but we know they are a vulnerable class of people and the law should be allowed to to be exercised uh, in an appropriate way. One issue that the Greens seem to have really cut through this year has been the housing issue and uh, the Greens have made a priority the plight of renters. Do you see us moving 
to a community where we're going to get more and more renters? And does this mean, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Does it mean home ownership should be downplayed and, and rent uh, assistance, renters' rights and all mm. those issues should come to the fore? Well, you know, I think you don't have to scratch very hard to find uh, people in all of our communities, I certainly know in South Australia, there is a really big crisis in our housing area, both for people who've saved up and trying to, you know, enter home ownership, but especially in relation to rental. And um, I, th I think this is an issue that's taken a lot of us by surprise in Australia and the political fixes for it need to be found. Um, people who are very vulnerable, older women, young people, are finding themselves renting because it is so impossible to enter home ownership. And I think in the countries that do a lot more rental than us in Europe, there are other ways of approaching housing. But home ownership has been a real foundation stone in Australian uh, political and community life. And should I, it remain as such? I, I think people want to have the possibility of security in their housing. I think what we need to do right now, though, is to protect renters and to provide them with protection from massive increases in rents. If you go into any country town in South Australia and across New South Wales and most other states, you'll find rapid increases in rents, and especially, of course, in our big cities. People are very vulnerable. Our homelessness is increasing. I live near a very big park in South Australia. There are many people living in, this, in that park who, you know, in numbers that I've never seen before. It's a crisis and we believe that in the Greens that the rental, uh, the runaway rents need to be capped and we need to find a long-term solution, which I know as an economist lies in improving supply, supply especially of social housing, housing that's affordable at the lower incomes. We all know the blocks are getting supplies to increase supplies. It were. How do you increase supply quickly in these circumstances that we now face? Well, I think it needs to be led by public sector investment, and that's what we bargained for with the government for a massive increase of billions of dollars in investment in, in social housing. And we need to to see a collaborative effort across different levels of government to increase that investment. It's not going to happen quickly. That's what your question's pointing to. But unless we start putting in place those solutions and assisting those who right now face a crisis in rising rents, then we are throwing the vulnerable people, most vulnerable people in our communities under the bus. And it's very un-Australian. We can do a lot better. And we've got the resources there. We're running a, now a surplus budget, big investment in tax cuts for very wealthy people coming down the pipe. Uh, and, you know, here we are spending you know, billions and billions of dollars, 363 billion at last count on submarines. We can do that kind of thing over a long-term plan around defence, then we can do a long-term plan around housing. The last election was a very successful one for the Greens. It increased the, the lower house representation from one to four and it increased your Senate numbers. Looking at the lower house, where's the scope to pick up more seats next time? Well, we're very um, keen to continue the conversation that began in that last election with people talking about the need to see um, a really strong, independent, environmentally inclined a party like the Greens, which stands up for cli on climate action and stands up on social justice, especially, as you pointed out, around housing. So they're the, the twin uh, issues that we are walking forward on and we are very keen to be talking in those future seats. So I think there'll be a range of places where the opportunities will be there, but it's a big project. I mean, hanging on to those uh, seats that we have won, there's a lot of uh, uh, energy on the other side of politics to, to make those 
those, um, you know, to challenge us in those places. But what we are hearing and seeing in our communities, I think, is people very concerned and alarmed about the big parties agreeing on a lot of things. Um, for example, most recently this week on, on that question of, of the treatment of people and refugees. Um, also, you know, the social justice questions of housing uh, and climate action. We see Labor opening new coal and gas. You know, we went to that last election with a mantra, no new coal and gas. That's as relevant today as it was in 2022 in the lead up to that election. And that that is ground that we really want to fight on because it's our it's our kids' future. So do you think Labor, which is pretty centrist as a government, is um, vulnerable, particularly on its left flank? I think there are a lot of young people and people for whom climate action is important who are really paying attention to what Labor is doing, opening new coal and gas, um, doing deals with the gas industry. I think there is real disappointment in some quarters on that front. Um, and, you know, we want to see those, those um, we've worked hard with this government to try and improve uh, and defend against climate action. We're hearing reports today of, you know, the possibility of an increase in temperature of more than three degrees across the planet. That is a disaster for people, especially people uh, in, in very poor countries, and it will be a massive crisis for us. We already see it, of course, in, in all the changes in our weather patterns and the threat of a very hot summer. So I think there is uh, definitely going to be a big contest ahead and some of the themes that we've been talking about for a long time, people will be paying attention to what Labor has actually delivered and what we promised to do in balance of power. The Greens have been pretty assertive, more assertive perhaps than we might have expected this term. Do you think that they'll become more assertive? And if Labor slips into minority government, how do you see the role of the Greens? Well, I think, you know, I personally and our party room is very driven by the principles of a safe planet and a fair planet. And they're issues that a lot of voters are, are paying attention to. If you look at the teal seats and the issues there also, there is a lot of overlap. A lot of Australians looking beyond the big parties and their consensus, for example, around fossil fuel and deeply critical of it. So I think, um, you know, there is real potential to grow uh but people who want integrity in government, who want uh, to, to get uh, some space between big corporations and the parties that represent Australians in this parliament. They want to see an end to that lobbying. I've been really shocked to see consultants, for example, not even make an appointment, just come and knock on my door, uh, feeling that they have an entitlement to lobby a politician. So that question of integrity in government, real action on coal and gas and fossil fuels, and the rising inequality in our community, especially around housing, social security and so on, I think they're issues that will present real opportunities in the next election. So the Greens, if there was a minority government, would play hard? I think so. I don't think we're here to waste time. People want, you know, people ask what's a Labor government for? Should be here to make a difference? Well, we're certainly here to make a difference in the Greens. There's a lot at stake. Barbara Pocock, thank you very much for talking with us today. And that's all for our politics podcast for now. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.